You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Amgen Oncology, advancing oncology at the speed of life. On September 4th, the Washington Post brought together leading oncologists, innovative researchers, and cancer survivors for a live event in Boston, examining the latest developments in cancer treatment, prevention, and detection. While treatment plans depend on the type of cancer, researchers and doctors are working on new targeted therapies for patients, including precision medicine. In this segment, leading doctors and researchers will discuss groundbreaking personalized medical treatments that they hope will cure cancer. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Frances Steed Sellers. I'm a senior writer at The Washington Post, and I'm delighted to introduce this afternoon's guests. First of all, on my left is Dr. Catherine Janeway, Director of Clinical Genomics at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Next to her is Dr. Andrew Kung, Chair of Pediatrics at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And then Dr. Dan Urich. He's a physician scientist and precision medicine expert at Massachusetts General Hospital. So welcome to you all. And a reminder to everybody in the audience, if you do want to reach the, our panelists with a question, you can tweet to me using the hashtag Post live. So now let's get started. Um, we've been hearing a lot about precision medicine, Dr. Kang. It's a term we hear a lot about, but probably people don't understand that precisely. Could you give us a brief definition and tell us why oncologists in particular are so excited about it? I think there's a lot of different definitions of precision medicine, but at its essence, the goals of precision medicine are to give the right drug to the right patient at the right time. I think as an oncologist, some of us bristle at the idea that precision medicine is a new finding, a, a, a new concept, um, because that would imply that the way we treated cancer has been imprecise up to now. I think why oncologists are so excited about the concept of precision medicine is that the tools that we have to diagnose, to understand what went wrong to result in the cancer and the arsenal of drugs that we're now able to match to those abnormalities has been advancing so rapidly that this is a time of convergence where all the investments in research over the last 30, 40 years are starting to bear fruit. And so I think our tools are more precise, our drugs are better, and it really makes it a very fruitful time to marry these two in the concept of precision medicine for cancer. So that brings me to a question to you, Dr. Yurik. Um, these, these new um, approaches have massive potential benefits for a small subset of patients. Um, how, what are the challenges in bringing them to those people? How do we make that transition from the lab to the patients you people are treating? Precisely, precision medicine is exactly this. It's about inverting the pyramid, so to speak, of treatments that we have. We used to, in the past, treat everyone with the same treatment, right. and only a small subset of them would derive benefit. Right. We're now trying to invert this pyramid to end up with, with much bigger benefits, but in a smaller number of patients. For this reason, mm -hmm. we have to test everyone. We have to understand what defines their cancer. To be the enemy, you need to know the enemy. So we have to know exactly what drives the cancer. And then we have to go after this small subset of patients 
with drugs that really do their, their job that produce this impact. True match. Exactly. And for this reason, we need to reach the patients. And I think this session follows on a wonderful session that, that points to the fact that the really small subset of patients participate in clinical trials. 3% is probably a, a generous number for some diseases. And since we are going after smaller and smaller subset of patients, we really need everyone to partner with us to actually drive the innovation of these drugs by participating in clinical trials, which are not just trials where we're collecting the data. The intent is not just that, it's to treat. Right. Because we have better and better drugs that have to pass even more rigorous hurdles and tests in their preclinical space. When they enter the patient, we have much better understanding what they may achieve. And since we're going after this small subset of patients, we really need everyone to get tested, to have their tumors analyzed, to participate in these innovative uh, treatments, clinical trials, uh, as early as possible, and that will drive the entire field forward. That's fascinating. Dr. Janeway, take us into the, the, the process of treating a patient. You had a patient, a young 13-year-old, um, I believe, who did very well with precision medicine. Can you tell me a little bit about what his experience was and then how he's doing now and, and, and the huge transformation that this brought to his care? Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, I think the story really brings to light um, what my colleagues have discussed um, so far. Um, so we had um, now about uh, three years ago, um, a patient referred to us from very far from Boston. I'm, I practice here in Boston and uh, he was referred to our surgeons um, and he had a football sized tumor um, right next to his hip that had been causing him uh, hip pain that occurred you know, 24 hours a day, kept him awake at night. Um, it had been biopsied or sampled already twice and nobody could provide a name for the cancer that he had. Um, and when you don't have a name for a cancer, you actually don't know what treatment to use because all of our oncology treatments are based on identifying the cancer mm -hmm. type. So uh, fortunately, we were able to, um, you know, we explained to the surgeon that we thought we might have an approach to help figure out what the cancer was and what to do for treatment. So we brought the patient to Boston. Um, and we were, we used tumor profiling, which is one of the tools that, that Dr. Khan mentioned, um, where we sequence or read every single letter of the, or many of the letters of the cancer to help understand what's, what's making it tick, what's making it go. Um, we were able to find um, a unique event, uh, which is called an NTREC fusion. It's where two genes change places, and the gene gets turned on abnormally and makes the cells divide and, and grow into this football-sized tumor. In this case, that no, not only helped us classify the cancer to know what it was, but also we had one of these new medicines, these what we call targeted medicines, that basically takes what's turned on mm. and specifically turns it off. And that thing is only turned on in the cancer. So by turning it off, you really only impact the cancer and not the rest of the body as much as we do with our standard treatments. How was he receiving of, these drugs or this treatment? So this is an oral medicine, and, and it was received on a clinical trial. Um, and after, um, after two months, the tumor had shrunk to about half the size. And after about six months, it had shrunk down to the size of a walnut. And so whereas in the beginning, when we first encountered him, the surgeons told us there's no way to remove this tumor without removing part of the hip, some of the intestines, 
a major surgery with really significant side effects for him that he would live with for the rest of his life. They were able to just pluck it out. There were no alive cancer cells seen at the time that was removed. And three years later, he's doing great. And during the treatment time, he didn't lose his hair. He went to school. He was feeling well. The, the pain he was having in his hip got better. Um, and you know that's really very different than the cancer treatment experience that you heard at the beginning right, of this session right. um, from, uh, that, that people experience with our standard sort of chemotherapy type treatment. And my understanding is he was not from the Boston area, but that does bring me to a question for you, Dr. Kang, about these very expensive um, treatments that are often provided in wonderful academic medical centers as we have here, but what are the opportunities to provide them to people around the rest of the country and the rest of the world? I, th I think uh, drug costs are certainly a uh, area of intense conversation, not only in the cancer space, but across all of medicine. Mm -hmm. I think that um, access and the democratization of some of these innovative therapies, that it really is the obligation of the academic medical centers, the comprehensive cancer centers, to do the research, to conduct the clinical trials that will ultimately lead to an approval. And the approval of a drug is how you democratize it and make it available to anybody, anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I think that those of us that work at academic medical centers like Memorial Sloan Kettering, we're obliged to do the kind of clinical trials mm -hmm. that ultimately provide access to all cancer patients through approvals. One of our uh, listeners is asking me over Twitter what the difference is between personalized medicine and precision medicine. And if any of you want to take a quick so, um, shot at that. The difference fundamentally is simply about the methodology that we use to characterize the cancer. Mm -hmm. In its essence, targeted therapies, personalized therapies are very similar. We're trying to give the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. What changes over time is the technology itself. So now we can use so-called next-generation sequencing, which is a very precise way of determining so-called mutations or errors in various genes that drive cancer. And with these methodological improvements came the need to kind of reframe our thinking about cancer and precision oncology as a term uh, uh, emerge. But it's fundamentally about the, the deeper and deeper understanding that we have about cancer using better and better and more precise mm. technologies. I think the Amtrak example that we heard just a few minutes ago, it's really a wonderful example how these precision approaches have completely changed the, the framework. Think about it. Amtrak is one of the first example of something called disease or cancer agnostic drug development, hmm. where it's not so much about what cancer does the patient have. It's about what mutation is driving the, their cancer. And if there, if there is a mutation, the chances of success with that drug approach is about 75%, regardless of the actual disease. Some other biomarkers, we call them, or mutations that we use right. to select treatments are very context dependent. There really does matter what disease you have and what biomarker you have. So the story you've told me was so inspiring about your 13-year-old your patient mm -hmm. and these numbers also seem very exciting but 
But precision medicine has its critics, and I know there were a series of articles um, presented before the American Society of Clinical uh, uh, Oncology um, presenting four precision medicine studies. Two were failures and two had maybe a 5% success rate. So how do we fix this? Is it through clinical trials? Is, are we backing into the question we asked before? What's the next step in making sure that we have greater success for more people? So if you don't mind, I'll start to answer that question. Um, uh, so I think some of the trials that were looked at in that study were conducted at the beginning of precision medicine. Right. Um, and we've made a lot of progress. So how do we make progress? Um, we improve the way that we're interrogating the cancer. Um, so our approaches to um, finding or discovering and, and naming or, or, or identifying the thing that's driving the cancer have really improved. Second, our drugs improve. So um, you need uh, these targeted therapies need to be very um, active and precise at engaging with the abnormality in the cancer. Um, and then um, finally, um, we need to look not just at the success stories, but at the population of patients as a whole. And we need to understand how often and in what cancer types are we best at finding the abnormalities. When we do find them, are we able to get the drugs to the patient? When we get the, drug, the right drug to the right patient at the right time, how well does it work? Right. And then another question that's incredibly important in the field is how often does resistance develop? So if the drug works, how long does it work for? Does the cancer find a way around it? Because cancer is very smart. So I think many of us are involved in projects that do that. Um, one way to really understand that on a global level is to bring a lot of data together. Um, and in childhood cancer in particular, that's an area that all of us are working on um, quite a bit right now, is to aggregate right. um, data so we can answer those questions for our patients when they come to us. How likely are you to find something? How, how common is it right. to have a success story like this? So Dr. Kang, you were also a pediatric oncologist, and, and President Trump recently pledged to allocate $500 million towards pediatric cancer research over the next 10 years. Is that a drop in the bucket? Should more be done? Is that the right kind of focus you need? Or are there other areas that you would like to see public policy change or politicians move into this area? I think as a pediatric oncologist, certainly if you're a parent of a child with cancer, um, any sort of commitment as was made is welcome. Um, the National Cancer Institute, which is the largest funder of cancer research in the United States, has about 4% of its budget devoted to pediatric cancer. Pediatric cancer, like adult cancers, is not one disease. And so that 4% is spread amongst many different types of childhood cancers. Uh, and so certainly the 500 million that was committed um, does represent uh, a welcome addition. I would say that as a field, uh, the progress that we've made to date has all been on the backs of basic and clinical research. And so to sustain the progress that we've made, uh, a renewed commitment to research funding across the board. So we're talking about basic science there and not. Absolutely. So basic science, but also translational science, patient directed, patient oriented mm -hmm. uh, science and discovery. Um, th now is the time to recommit mm. to the kind of funding that will pay off in the next 10 years. Right. 
Dr. Janeway, just quickly, I know you told me that you were also a cancer survivor, and how has that affected the way you treat pediatric patients with these very specialized um, yeah. care, forms of care? Well, um, you know, I feel very fortunate to be able to pick up on the survivorship um, theme that was discussed at the, at the beginning mm -hmm. of this program. Um, I uh, had leukemia a little over five years ago, um, and the experience um, took what was or has always been a, a real professional um, commitment and, and passion and turned it into a personal and family um, experience and um, a personal and family commitment to really uh, move the field forward. And um, I am fortunate to have benefited actually from precision therapy myself. Um, I had a, the gene mutation that was driving my leukemia was identified, and I got a transplant and a drug that counteracts that, and um, I don't know if that's why I'm here five years later, but um, I do think, um, you know, we need to continue to make this sort of um, progress in precision oncology and um, change that triangle, is that what you said? Right. From a small triangle, make the the numbers of patients who benefit Invert larger pyramid, and larger. Invert the pyramid Invert again the pyramid. and, and right. help a larger number of patients with precision oncology. So I think it's really important, and to follow on your previous remarks, to think about the entire continuum as opposed to sort of having these silos where pediatric oncology is one part of the story. Adult oncology operates in a completely different space. We have to understand that we can learn a lot from each other. I have spent almost 10 years studying one genetic alteration, a gene called PIK3CA. It happens to be the most common actionable alteration in estrogen receptor-driven breast cancer. Interestingly, though, the same mutation in children is associated with so-called overgrowth syndromes, with vascular uh, uh, malformation, not necessarily cancer. Hmm. All of a sudden, by looking at the two and realizing how and why the same event causes two different disorders. Um, this is fundamentally a sort of beautiful way to start to learning from each other and gain insight so you into adults. Exactly, you can study one disease in children and actually learn, wow, is it the context that matters? Mm -hmm. Is it that in, in adults, it's not just this mutation, it's other mutations. Is it, is it the timing that matters? Uh, when does the mutation get turned on? So this is how we can actually learn from each other and we can understand these complexities better. I want to go back to your uh, comment on these criticisms of precision medicine. We're just starting, right. literally. We are now at the phase of marking the field having the roster of players and being able to discern their numbers. But as anyone who watches soccer or football knows, there's a lot of drama on the field. Right. We need to understand these interactions of players better. We need to know how can we change the timing. We're just starting and I, 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 I'm, I, it's a good time for cancer patients because they can witness and I hope to see that in the near future, even bigger and bigger progress in the right. field. Well. Unfortunately, we have to come to an end, just as you're saying, we're just at the beginning of this enormously important research. I'd like to thank you all three for coming here this afternoon. Um, please remember to keep tweeting if you have more questions as for, for us this, this afternoon. Thank you, Drs. Janeway, Kung, and Yurik for joining me. 
And um, please stay seated in the audience for the next por portion of our pro program. I'll be back with you soon. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.